0: Hello everyone and welcome to Short Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going?
1: It's going well, thanks Ed. Um, considering we are recording a few days out from the casual midweek coup d'état that happened mm-hmm. in, in your data, fifty of them or so. Yeah, still reeling from that, to be honest. Um, but it's also my birthday, so yeah. Yay! yay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've mainly just been eating a lot of crisps and. Cheese and chocolate, so yeah, the the three C's. That's your food (laughs) groups, isn't it? Um, no, thirty one, and just in lockdown, it's my first experience of a lockdown birthday. I know Mm
0: -hmm.
1: plenty of other people experience them, but basically, all of the Capricorns and Aquarians are experiencing now what Pisceans, Taurians. I'm not going to go through the whole um zodiac (laughs) to uh save you all, but yeah, I'm just like, okay, this is. Okay. And obviously I miss seeing everyone, but I also feel uh, incredibly lucky at the same time, um, because things are grim out there, Ed. I don't know if you've noticed.
0: Yeah, yeah, I had had noticed a little bit. Um, (laughs) It was a very destabilising 24 hours, I feel, um, in the sense that, like, on Tuesday, you know, certainly in my corner of the internet, everyone was very, very excited that the democrats had won the two senate seats in georgia which you know was, was a possibility because that state had was very close in the presidential election and in the gubernatorial election two years earlier but you know democrats hadn't won any seats there in a long time and it was against two incumbents and there were all these things against them but it was still like an outside possibility and just so many people were really excited even people who you know like leftists who hate the democratic party for you know fairly uh righteous reasons we're just super excited that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler lost because they just seemed like such total awful crooks. <laughs> and it's like really nice to see them lose, particularly Leffler, who ran such like a transparently racist campaign. So there was a lot of joy, like jubilation. And then, like, the next day, you're like, oh my God, this is uh, incredibly serious. And there's just been. Yeah, it's just been a very hard thing to comprehend, because as with so many things involving, like, the kind of, like, Trumpist far-right and QAnon and all that kind of, like, melange of different groups that kind of exist on that spectrum, the whole situation felt both deeply scary and incredibly farcical at the same time, and in the sense that there were some people there who were, like, clearly just kind of, like, swept up in it and just had no idea what they were doing. And you see them, like, wandering around the capital, like, a bunch of, like, tourists who just happened to have wandered in and are like, oh, wow, this is the capital building. And then you see some people there who are in, like, got zip ties and tactical armour, and you're like, oh, these people clearly have intents to murder politicians. Great. Yeah. And that element of it i think you know like it can exist in two states at the same time like because clearly the um the hardline militia murderous intent people are using the kind of the, the kooks and the weirdos as a smoke screen in some regards like they're they they're using them to kind of like do horrible things and yeah it's just been a very dark week i feel in terms of like seeing exposed new the kind of like the really violent heart of parts of america And what they're potentially capable of if they ever kind of like get their act together as opposed to just being a poorly orchestrated mass being kind of like half-heartedly directed by a former reality TV star. Yeah. But on the plus side, it was very funny when Trump got banned from Twitter. Oh, (laughs) Mm. yes. Uh, And seeing him hop around from different accounts and those accounts getting banned as well its just uh that that was uh a nicely uh cathartic thing and seeing you know all the various like q anon influencers getting banned and you know, like this thing that definitely is you know locking the the locking the barn door after the horse has left raised a family and died of old age is like you know it's a small measure but at the very least you can say okay they 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 maybe will be able to stem some of the radicalization radicalization going forward but yeah, it feels like uh, a lot of damage has already been done by uh, social media companies. and you, I, I really hope that the incoming Congress use their power to uh, investigate some of those companies and maybe curb their influence and power because they've got too much of it.
1: It's very bad. I'm not, uh, I can't say much more than, you know, analysis beyond screaming. <laughs> so much screaming. Mm.
0: Yeah, so that was that was mainly my week. <laughs> um, it would start by i did start the week like intending to catch up on 2020 movies um and i did watch a few of them but then like the back half of the week i was just kind of like well i don't really feel like i can concentrate trade anything right now um i'm just too anxious about things but i did really enjoy watching uh she dies tomorrow the amy simons movie mm. starring uh caitlin shiel about a woman who becomes convinced that she's going to die the next day, and then everyone she tells that she's going to die, they then become convinced that they're going to die, and it kind of, like, spreads out, and it's, I think, a really great way of capturing the general air of all of our various existential, like, anxieties right now. Mm -hmm. Like how, like any given moment you can see something on twitter and it will just kind of like completely ruin your day and you'll be kind of like reminded of some of the like awful awful things that are going on in the world and uh, i thought that the movie was like really beautiful at illustrating that idea and like you know how it kind of captures a certain sense of but but also like it's not all just kind of like doom and gloom there is like it captures the certain sense of ecstasy that can come from kind of accepting that, you know, things are bad, you only have a certain amount of time on Earth, so why don't you try and do something with it, that I think is really moving in places. And, yeah, it's a really interesting work and really beautifully shot. And, uh, yeah, I was really glad to finally see it. It's, It's one of the many films from last year that I would have really liked to have seen in the cinema, but obviously was not on the cards.
1: Sounds like the perfect existential birthday watch. Might have to give that a a go.
0: So we'll go on to the news for this week. And the only kind of like big piece of entertainment news that happened in the last few days, I think other than Trump being banned off Twitter, which was just entertaining news, (laughs) um, was the death of Michael Apted, the director of, amongst other things, the Up series of movies, the series of documentaries about... Uh, children in Britain, starting with them when they were seven years old, which he works on as a uh, producer. And then every seven years subsequently, he would inter- interview those same children, at least the ones that wanted to continue with the project. And every seven years, he would catch up with them, talk to them about their lives and, you know, see where they were going, you know, how they felt that their lives had turned out, particularly once you get to them in their older age, when you look at them in like 56 up and 63 up the last instalment that he uh, directed which came out last year and what's really quite nice about Michael Apted uh, the, the, the appreciation of Michael Apted's career was that there was this interesting thing where obviously he had this one career defining work which I think you know ensures his place in the annals of film history which is the Up series you know this thing that was really a beautiful uh, use of the medium to kind of say something quite profound about the human condition and particularly about Britain in the latter half of the 20th century. But he was also like a working director who just made a bunch of stuff of varying qualities and like so many people were talking about liking, you know, the Bond film he directed or The Coal Miner's Daughter or like just like highlighting the various kind of things that he made over a long and varied career and there was this really interesting thing where on the one hand he was just like a total consummate journeyman who like went out there and did the work and on the other hand he's like oh yeah he also made this like uh medium defining work and something quite nice about that that he could be celebrated by a lot of people for a bunch of different reasons Mm, yeah so we'll go on to the main topic for this week. And as you said, Emily, it's your birthday, as is the rule on this podcast. That means you get to determine the uh, subject. So what are we going to be talking about this week?
1: Think you, will find It's the law, Ed. Tis, tis the law <laughs> of this land. Well, we are going to be talking about a couple of things, but mainly as we're in the mood for celebrating uh, things getting older, or at least I am. <laughs> Brokeback Mountain turned 15 mm. last year, and I wanted to commemorate it. And then we couldn't quite find space because other stuff sort of kept kind of coming to the fore. But Annie Prue, Pru? we go Prue Prue, mm-hmm. Pru? and the the author of the short <laughs> story Brokeback Mountain, um, her work also uh, the Shipping News was uh, adapted as well. Like she's you know, as as a writer, um, not unfamiliar with adaptation, but she very recently said when being interviewed about Brokeback Mountain, she was really quite angry about what was essentially fan fiction that's been mm. circling around Brokeback Mountain and really only because of the film, but in particular, people sort of giving the two protagonists, Ennis Del Mar and Jack Twist, a happy ending because spoiler for a short story that was published in 1997 and a film that as we have said is 15 years old it doesn't end happily and a lot of what Annie Prue was saying was um, I mean she said uh, these characters belong to me by law um, and also that the world is not kind um, for gay men and, and for queer people she is straight herself so it's interesting why exactly this is the um, hill or Brokeback Mountain that she wishes to die on, Ed. And I just thought there's so much going on there, like in terms of the impact that Brokeback Mountain had at the time when it came mm. out. the It's kind of ongoing legacy that I think is very hard not to sort of and and for good reason to intertwine with Heath Ledger's legacy but also just the notion of kind of fanfic and not so much death of the author but what's the kind of remit because to me I don't know about you but reading her comment I just thought god that's so unfair and also like kind of let it go like fair use and things like that Lindsay Ellis did a really incredible sort of I think it's like a few a few parter in terms of a tussle that she got into with a writer of correct me if I'm wrong here werewolf erotic fiction um, oh that's great. yep yeah. cool okay great yep everything is remains terrible not not kink shame but like honestly anyway so it's just this big swirling interest so essentially there's there's just so much going on there Ed so why don't we dive right into it how did you feel when I sent you kind of Prue's comments what was your sort of initial take on it
0: I was initially I mean I I I can kind of see her point in the sense of like she wrote that book or that short story with a very clear intention she intended it to be a tragic love story she intended it to be about like she says, like how it can be quite cruel for gay men and particularly like the the period that the story covers, you know, it starts in the 60s, I think, and goes through to the 80s. And, you know, not to say that America is a land of like total sunshine for gay people now, but, you know, it was particularly bad during those years and there's lots of uh, struggle and pain and death associated with those years. And I can understand, you know, her being irate that people would change, would want to kind of like take the story that she wrote with that very clear intention and that clear point that she was trying to make about homophobia. And, you know, kind of undo it by being like, oh, and by the way, they got together and it was fine. Like, oh, no, Jack didn't die. He was he was all right in the end. Ah, And I can I can I can sympathize with that. I ought and I also can sympathize with it mainly because the way she frames it is she talks about people sending her like that which I feel like it goes a little beyond just like someone writes fanfic and puts it out into the world. I feel like there's something really weird about writing fanfic and changing it and being sending it to the author expecting yeah. validation. Yeah. That that element of it is like what kind of makes me think just Don't do that. You're not going to convince Annie Proof that you've improved her work or that she... Or, or like, she maybe thinks that they are writing it thinking that she got it wrong. So, like, I can totally uh, appreciate that. But at the same time, like, I am very supportive in general of fanfic. I think it's a very good, healthy thing. It's often a, a, a great place for writers to kind of, like, hone their skills by working with other characters and things like that. And I could understand people who uh people who you know watch Brokeback Mountain the movie or read the short story coming away and being like so sad about the ending because it's a very sad very tragic ending and deciding that they want to that they would rather have seen a happier story and that and Annie proves um argument kind of boils down to like why don't you and write it with the characters that aren't the ones I created Mm. uh which I think is is as a fair is a fair point on on her part but, like, yeah, I, I can definitely see both sides of it. Like, I feel like her response is maybe a little out of proportion, but at the same time, you know, like, it's probably the first uh, one of the only experiences she has with it all because, like, I doubt anyone's really sending her, like, fan fiction of the shipping news, for example. Yeah. <laughs>
1: She clearly just hasn't got my post yet. There's been delays. It's been wild, Ed. <laughs> I completely get what you're saying. I think anyone who thinks that sending an author something like that and expecting any response at all, particularly a positive one, is bizarre rather than mm. like a letter saying this really affected me and love your work. it's it, To me, it's kind of like it's... um. Proto snitch tagging on Twitter, right? Like, yeah. you know, if these people want to find out about themselves, they can Google themselves, and no one is beyond criticism. And I'm with you. I think even without kind of the themes and the characters and the events that have actually happened, just doing that with anyone—it's very strange behavior. But what mm. I think is just sort of trying to articulate why I found it so unfair. In terms of not the direct communication, I think as we've established, very weird. What I thought was unfair in terms of just the fanfic as a whole is that fanfiction, fanfic—I'm going to go between uh, the terms—is one of the few sort of modes of expression that has actually been kind of queer from the start. Mm. And Lindsay Ellis pointed this out in in her videos that I mentioned. So a lot of fan fiction, like particularly from the time that I remember, because (laughs) I wrote fan fiction, I know, it's just the glamour never stops, Uh, round about kind of the early 2000s, like before social media, remember Mm. as well. So it was kind of like a development from forums where you'd have characters who were canonically straight would be put into slash fiction, as it was Mm. called, because often in the title it would have um, the characters' names with a um, a forward slash, and it was the idea of picking up on maybe any any sort of underlying um, homoeroticism. Because also, let's just remember, like at that time, like representation just didn't happen at all. There was just it, and if it was, it was generally, um, you know, um, kill your gays, you know, which is still the issue. So it's hard to find anything that's like particularly joyful and like the majority of slash fiction is just like again erotica and nothing wrong with that because again just the werewolves ed i'm still (laughs) anyway um so the idea of doing fan fiction about brokeback mountain i think is the people who are writing it i think are the people who are painfully aware that the world is homophobic. Like who is Annie Proulx, mm. Proulx writing for? Annie Prue, who's a straight woman is probably in a sort of real act of kind of authorly empathy and interest in these characters. And in 97 sort of getting across, you know, being published in the New Yorker, that's not long after the sort of real peak of the AIDS crisis mm. and anyone writing fanfic I think being inspired or recognizing themselves or their friends in Ennis and Jack the kind of the rural elements of it as well you know I think these people just want to create something happy I don't think in any way they are unaware of the homophobia (laughs) it's quite the opposite so for her to come back with that rather than like why are these weirdos sending me (laughs) this directly to my mailbox Because like you say, fanfic is a way for a lot of people to hone their talents, but it's also imagining something better and more joyful and to take characters who were probably meant for a straight audience to get a kind across like, hey, you know what, it's always been pretty bad for gay people, you guys. And these, you know, how much more sort of American macho can you get than the cowboy you know this kind of like cracking into the sort of this semiotics of American masculinity, and and that that was really important. And you know, and then when the film was made, and again, being made by pretty much as far as I'm aware an exclusively straight cast, <laughs> and yet the plaudits that the acting got and the writing and that people were saying, well, it's a love story, and a lot of people being like, oh, okay, and and kind of coming round to it somehow i'm rambling now ed but yeah i just think prue saying no these characters have to have an awful (laughs) an awful Mm -hmm. heartbroken tragic like existence and that is the sum the, the sum total of their legacy is i you know because homophobia is real and has to be in all fiction and in this story I don't know. I think it's um I think it's pretty old school to the point of being retrograde is is what I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think it is like fanfic in general I think is fairly harmless. Like obviously you're going to get some writers who will use it to like just do like horrible awful things with characters for whatever reason, but like as a exercise it's not really harming anyone. It doesn't harm her copyright on the characters or anything like that i think her i think i obviously don't know entirely what's in her art or anything but like i like from reading the article that you sent me it did seem to be like this was more like a very specific reaction to her thinking it's weird that people are sending me this stuff yeah and that kind of provokes the kind of extremeness of the reaction whereas i think if someone had said to her hey, did you know that people kind of like write fanfic stories about it? She'd probably be a little perturbed just because it doesn't seem like a world that she would necessarily be that familiar with. Mm. But also it seems like the sort of thing you could probably shrug off as an author if people weren't sending you you directly. And again, like seemingly saying like, hey, look what I did to your work and your characters. uh, Which again is like a a weird attitude to have, uh, in my opinion, like just of in the same way that it's kind of weird when you hear like, you know, uh, of story and um, Shannon Strucci did this uh, really well in their uh, essay about um, parasocial relationships, like about people writing slash fic about like YouTube personalities and then like sending it to them. And then like, there's just something a bit strange about like, going from hey i wrote this thing about you know people or art that really affects me and then i sent it to the person who created it like that seems like a a thing that would be uh destabilizing or upsetting to the person who receives it even if it was sent totally with like the best intentions in the world because it's a it's just it's a it's a weird out growth of our kind of like connected way of living i think
1: absolutely and I think the general sense of entitlement is something that's quite scary or can Mm. or can really turn and you know you can see this in various other kind of fandoms that are toxic and that you and I have um discussed before and it's that idea of if it's not exactly how I want it to be then that's someone else's responsibility and I'm going to hound them about it
0: Mm. and I guess
1: you know Annie Prue's in her 80s now yeah and I guess it must be quite frustrating as a writer to probably only be known or to have a certain kind of audience tip in off the back of Brokeback Mountain as opposed Mm. to something like the shipping news because I think Brokeback Mountain's casting is also really important because that was I think what pushed Jake Gyllenhaal into like a next level because it was yeah. this kind of it it was this kind of Oscar contender and that Heath Ledger it was the first sort of role that everyone said oh he's just like completely transformed and I think for both of them it was this idea of like oh they're not just kind of like indie darlings they're not teenagers anymore you know they're in their mid twenties and they're starting to get really serious. And Mm. I, and I think a lot of the, you know, the general feeling and and sort of meta narrative around that film that went to the press was that these people have also all fallen in love with each other on this set. Like um, I think Jake Gyllenhaal is um, godfather to Heath Ledger's daughter with Michelle Williams who he he met on on the film um so there was this kind of like sense of it being so important and it had this kind of magnetic quality to it so that anyone who came into contact with it whether they were part of making it or watched it just seemed like forever changed and I remember watching it when it came out and just sort of how remarkably like quiet it was but also really powerful <laughs> so it was like mm. silent and yet like screaming the whole time and it didn't feel overtly hollywoody to me and i think that final scene is just so incredibly touching and manages to kind of and the way that it showed the sort of the, the tragedy as well was really restrained i think but then i think a, a lot of that has to do with ang lee um mm. and his style oh i remember when ang lee made those kind of films
0: <laughs> yeah he was such a uh such a delicate filmmaker mm. in in his way when he was doing his kind of like character focused dramas like obviously uh there's that there's the ice storm there's uh his version of sense and sensibility the wedding banquet obviously like he was such a good capturer of like details in performances and things like that like, he was so good at uh, at subtlety that feels very impactful and it's interesting you mentioning the quietness of the movie because like that's one of the things i find really interesting thinking about brokeback mountain as a cultural artifact and you know as what it represented at the time because now you watch it it's such a like you say such a quiet movie such a subtle movie such a movie of like small gestures but it was such a cultural like hot potato when yeah. it came out particularly in america like the reaction of the of conservatives over here to it the way in which even people who were generally like the movie like sort of proto-memed it by like making all the gay cowboy jokes which you really see if you watch any of the uh stuff from the 2005 Oscars where as you say you know it was a major contender but like there were just constant jokes about gay cowboys and like it it feels like uh something of a different world really because what if you compare it to even like you know queer films that were being made at the time like if you can play it, compare it to the work of Greg Araki or whatever mm-hmm. like it's so respectable uh in a way that you know is is why it kind of like really connected with mainstream audiences so it's but it's it's weird to think that it was seen as this thing that like everyone had to have like a take on and that it was this like such this lightning rod for controversy as far as conservatives were concerned when now you're getting think yeah it's a nice it's a nice sad story about a, a, a relationship between two men
1: absolutely and thinking about moonlight now and mm. you know that's one of the few lauded and widespread films i can think of that actually shows a sort of you know course of true love never ran smooth but still essentially a positive and happy ending to a, yeah. a, a romance between two men a, a love story between gay men and i think i remember at the time like a lot of people were saying like oh but it's just a love story almost like trying to strip the gay element out of it like being like mm-hmm. you know you can do why <laughs> oh yeah of course because and i think it's like I haven't watched it for a really long time, but I remember watching it, and I think there's something about it being a period film and very much kind of push forward as like we're gonna be able to tell these stories of these people now. But part of me feels like there's this kind of lag where I can't help but think of um, Connor for real and uh, <laughs> is you know the R- Ringo Starr saying like it's it's legal, <laughs> like they yeah. can they can get married. But then I guess it wasn't really run as like a crusading campaign film. It it was mm-hmm. it wasn't a social issue film, as far as I can remember. You know, if it ruffled people's feathers, that was on them. It was very much more about look how incredible these performances are, and not from yeah. a oh they're not even gay. And I think it's one of the few films where I'm like, okay they still did very well i don't know who you know because it's still very difficult to be openly out in um in hollywood i think for fear of typecasting i think it's still taking a really long time for people to be able to have that range and be themselves um and even even worse for the trans community um but i think It was definitely, and and I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this casting because I think there's something about putting these teen heartthrobs and these pinups in it that that kind of added to that, like, you know, it wasn't like two sort of already established solely dramatic, heavy-hitting actors were cast. Mm -hmm. There was this kind of like, and I don't know whether that was, you know, a slight kind of, security policy you know some insurance to be like oh it's all about you know the transformation but I think it's still a film that you know I'd be really interested to see what like younger people who watch it think of it now Mm. because there is so much like and it's remarkable actually thinking just in the past 15 years since it's been released you know again representation is far from perfect but at least there is more
0: Yeah, and also just, like, in broader terms of society in in the US, like, gay people are allowed to serve openly in the military now, Mm -hmm. like, gay marriage is the law of the land. There are, you know, considering how, like, gay marriage in 2004 in the presidential election, that was, like, one of the wedge issues that George W. Bush's campaign used in order to um, win re-election was to essentially campaign about passing a constitutional uh, amendments to ban gay marriage—you know, make it the lawland that gay people wouldn't be able to get married—and to think how, f- like, that now is so obviously considered to be such a retrograde opinion by the majority of the country, and like, even though things are, you know, still not great for gay people in in America, it is, you know, considerably better now than it was, like, in the mid two thousands, and so yeah, so like. I do think it's very interesting to think of it being as a movie in those terms, like when you consider the cultural context within which it came out, and then you're right, you know, the problem wasn't with the movie, like the movie wasn't making this kind of like big, broad point about gay people in general or like even like politically advocating for anything. Mm. It was that the mere fact that a movie existed and was like a fairly significant mainstream success and was getting nominated for oscars that said hey it's fine for two men to be in love with each other was like an affront to uh, a considerable part of of american society and particularly you know the conservative media environment and that in and of itself is like quite an interesting and i think and i like you i would be interested to see what like younger people think of it uh, watching it out of those, uh, out of that context, where if you watch it, and it now looks like you know incredibly tame compared to yeah you know, any ed pretty much like any kind of like mainstream or vaguely mainstream like work about queer love that's been made in the last sort of like ten years or so. I think you were right as well about the importance of the casting of. Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger in those roles. I think it certainly did a lot to kind of like draw people in. I think there was a mutually beneficial thing for them in that being cast in it. It seemed like the perfect thing for them to really prove their credentials as like we're serious adult stars, not merely in the fact that they were in the movie and they're very good in the movie, and they obviously got yeah they've got Oscar nominations, but also their refusal. Particularly Heath Ledger's, their refusal afterwards to kind of make light of the movie. Like, they both took it very seriously. There was that story about how Heath Ledger refused to do a skit at the Oscars making fun of the movie. Yeah. Um, they were both clearly very proud of it and took it seriously and didn't really engage with the gay cowboy jokes. And I think that did a lot to kind of like burnish them as, you know, serious uh, performers, which. You know, they they'd obviously both done like good work previously, but um, I think they showed a lot of maturity on and off screen uh, around about the release of the movie.
1: Absolutely, and that managed to come across as principled rather than kind of you know kind of mentally earnest. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and I think that's partly because it wasn't sort of pushed forward as a social issue film. And yeah. I just remember, um, you know, there's something about maybe that that they were they were young as as well, like just found this quote piece Travis Rolling Stone when he reviewed it, though the characters must age twenty years, Lee has cast the film young a risk that pays major dividends, which almost reminds me of Key New York <laughs> with the um, mm-hmm. death of a salesman and all the young people um so sort of, but again I, the aging's done really well and um authentically and mm-hmm. that Heath Ledger is essentially playing sort of twice his age at the end <laughs> It's actually plausible. I just, finished, yeah. Yeah, I just finished watching The Righteous Gemstones and the kind of younging of John Goodman, which, you know, again, the Irishman, also eerie. And I wonder in terms of, like, you know, who's coming to the film now and how they're finding it. I don't think it's going to be through fan fiction anymore. Like, mm-hmm. I keep coming back to the fact that, like, oh, yeah, this film was released in 2005, just before web 2.0 and before that kind of before that real kind of digital rush and I wonder how it would be now and whether it would feel as kind of if it it were made now whether it would be a moonlight or whether it would be a green book you know
0: Mm. yeah that's interesting I think I think it would probably be closer to I would like. I I think it would be closer to uh, a moonlight because it doesn't have, like, um, the over the top elements of Green Book that make Green Book like such a like an awful, ham fisted attempt. At, you know, kind of like making a terrible social message. Like it is. Yeah. You know, you know You can criticize the way in which it was sold at the time. People being like, oh, you know, it's not. You know, it's not about gay cowboys. It's a love story. But like, I do feel like the prominence of the love story and the way in which it impacts Jack and Enos over the course of their whole life I think does kind of like mitigate that sense of it feeling like a like a corny or like, like totally misfiring in its attempts to kind of like it, it, in some ways it, it's very reminiscent of um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire which yeah. is also a movie that's very clearly about a gay relationship but and is a period movie but like it's not necessarily making a kind of like social point for it. it wants to tell that story in that era and i think that you know cushions those sort of movies a lot more from the feeling that you know like if you watch like a movie like the lost weekend you know movie from the 40s about alcoholism where you know it's a very well-meaning social issues drama that looks kind of silly and over the top now Because you look at it and you kind of think, "Oh, that's kind of they're kind of doing a bit much to kind of like sell the idea of this guy being a drunk." Um, I feel like the 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 subtlety and the fact that the social issues element of it isn't foregrounded does a lot to kind of future-proof *Brokeback Mountain* in in a way so that for future generations, it just seems like a really plaintive, sweet, uh, ultimately tragic romance, as opposed to like a social issues movie that feels horribly outdated once you take it outside of its era.
1: Absolutely. And I don't think it's as radical as Boys Don't Cry. I think mm-hmm. because, you know, the fact that that is a biopic. Um, yeah. But Hilary Swank won her first Oscar for that. But again, now it's like looking back, it's like, oh, you really should have been a trans person. Mm-hmm. And I wonder now if kind of thinking of like Generation Z and and TikTok and, you know, if they've watched God, I've never felt my 31 years like keener than when I just said that sentence. Sorry, <laughs> it's all starting to hit me. You know, who who have watched things like Moonlight and Portrait of a Lady on Fire and they've got sex education and euphoria and pose and a real like plethora of things to to watch and and again to disagree with but there's more there is just simply more than there ever has been but whether they were to watch Brokeback Mountain and now be like oh yeah well at least Portrait of a Lady on Fire was made by a queer woman Mm. you know um and that it is I think imperfect in terms of that you know sort of true representation but again it's a story written by ultimately by a straight woman and its first iteration and and maybe it's a film made by allies before that term really got sort of like the wider use and understanding i still remember just loving it at the time though ed i I think it was really beautiful but yeah i wonder how how much more future-proofed it will it will be but i do think that you know within the film itself its storyline is is period is is might still give it a way to go. And I've got Kate Maris in it. (laughs) She's she's Mm. the daughter. She turns up at the end, it's like, oh, wow. Look how you've grown.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think also um, in terms of, I think why its reputation has held up very, very well um, over the last 15 years, regardless of how well it holds up in the future years, is it does have the benefit of losing to Crash. Oh. Like... I feel like that is such a calamitous choice and something that looks so much worse as the years go on, as Crash becomes, like, completely forgotten other than as, like, a terrible tone-deaf movie that absolutely should not have won Best Picture, that it looks like even, like, Roadbound Mountain can't help but look better by comparison as a result that's such a good point i completely forgotten that, that was all that all
1: that year oh 2005 and i remember now that you've that you said i don't remember annie proul being like this is hor- horrendous brokeback mountain should have won <laughs> <laughs> and you know what any film should have won other than other than crash but particularly brokeback mountain and i do think there was that sense of like oh it's in with such a good chance and this sort of mm. almost audible disappointment or even just like, where? <laughs> oh, her? She doesn't even go here.
0: Uh, before we go on to the uh, final segment, uh, I just have to ask, what was some of the stuff that you wrote fanfic about?
1: Okay, no, absolutely fair. Um, I was mainly um, active on uh, fanfic.net uh, between the years of 2001, 2004... <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, I, I pretty, I wrote pretty much exclusively on uh, Vampire Princess Mew and Final Fantasy Ten. You're welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you get very good at writing in the terrible laughter for Final Fantasy? X?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I'm, that's how I laugh every day now. <laughs> it's, it's was, uh, yeah, the, uh, but no, but no, I didn't really get many flames please don't please Aww. don't flame woo face um but yeah what a- <laughs> oh god and i'm 31 i'm just gonna get older oh fuck
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: i would like to recommend tom little um of german J.R. hartley fame Tom is on Twitter at this is tom little and he's an absolute joy. I feel like if um our listeners aren't already following him they're going to have an absolute whale of a time. A lot of what he does is dubbing old uh, mainly sort of UK adverts um sort of through the 80s and 90s um including the yellow pages J R Hartley <laughs> which is dubbed in quite an aggressive German <laughs> has to have legal profession anyway. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna maul it. Sorry, Tom. But um, he sprang to mind because he did the most um excellent tweet uh yesterday in response to Trump being banned and uh his his supporters his fascist minions saying that that was um Orwellian and uh tom uh found this george orwell quote saying if the president gets a permanent twitter ban then watch out because you were 1984 town baby (laughs) (laughs) so yeah um i cannot recommend tom little enough at this is tom little he's a joy
0: (laughs) cool I am going to recommend a movie that I watched this week. As I said, I've been trying to catch up on 2020 movies and I finally watched uh, Possessor, the second film, Ooh. I believe second, from Brandon Cronenberg, the uh, son of David. And uh, I couldn't help but watch it, particularly uh, yeah, from very early on. There's a scene of someone being brutally stabbed to death where the, there's lingering shots on the knife entering the body where well, I was just kind of imagining David Cronenberg watching it and going, ah, that's my boy! <laughs> 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 um, it's a, it's very much in keeping um, with the, the Cronenberg family brand of filmmaking. You know, it's very uh, clinical, horrifying, sci-fi. Uh, Andrea Riceborough stars as a woman who works for this shadowy organisation that takes possession of people in order to use them to carry out assassinations. The story is for the most part, about her inhabiting the body of Christopher Abbott as he is uh, trying to infiltrate and get close to Sean Bean, playing a CEO of a company who's been targeted for assassination, uh, in um, a development that I found very reminiscent of Hitman 2, where (laughs) Sean Bean uh, is a target in one of the missions. But there is that same kind of sense of, Um, you know, watching someone play a video game where, you know, you inhabit someone's body in order to make them do things. And, you know, there's a lot in the movie that's about uh, disassociation and depersonalization and about how much you can remove yourself from a situation in order to carry out terrible things. So I think there's a lot the movie's kind of like dealing with in terms of just modern society and how much we are able to remove ourselves from the terrible things that we are able to do. I think particularly if you're, you're looking at like drone warfare and things like that, like I'm not saying that the whole thing is like just this like big, um, metaphor for drone warfare or whatever, but like watching it, that was that, those were the sort of things that were being like churned up. It's got a lot on its mind in a really fascinating way. And it's also really brutal. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's only a handful of like violent scenes in the movie, but oh my gosh, when they happen, they're a lot. Um, and uh, it's a really just really, really great. I went in hoping to like it because uh, a lot of people whose opinions I respected really liked it. And I found it to be a really, really compelling and a... You know, a hopeful sign for Cronenberg's career. I think his first film was a movie called Antiviral, which came out about seven years ago and was very um, kind of was kind of very middling and 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 didn't feel like it was firing on all cylinders. But this feels like a real step up for him. So uh, I'm really hopeful to see what he does next and what his no doubt um, even more fucked up offspring will do <laughs> when they eventually <laughs> go into the family business. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, PlayerFM, Spotify, all the usual places, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.